Well, I did not necessarily have the intention of reading Jonah for this reason, but maybe we can at least just pause and say, well, okay, maybe at least I'm not like Jonah. <laughs> but unfortunately, maybe sometimes we have, I mean, literally just gotten angry with God, right? But uh, that, that, that's a pretty extreme example of, of, uh, of anger, and we, we, don't, we don't want to be about that. I'm going to read for you uh, just the, the verses 5 through 11 as we kind of remember where we're at in the book of Colossians, and we're going to be talking about, again, just the middle portion of this today. We're going through some lists right now, and sometimes those can be a little tricky because you're just kind of just knocking each thing down one at a time, but we want to do it in such a way that, that is practical for us. So uh, let me just read for you again uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Therefore, because of what we have just seen in verses 1 through 4, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived in them. But now you must also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. For Christ is all and in all. We're going to take a little extra time today to do some review uh, because of, of just you know, what, what, we've, what we've studied to this point. Um, we did something like this a few weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, and Paul did not write a collection of unrelated paragraphs and then clumped them together and sent them to the church in Colossae. He wrote a letter that had a theme through it that was all, you know, put together um, in organized, purposeful fashion. So what I want us to do is I want us to consider linking or connecting ourselves back to some of the things that we have studied to better understand God's message for us today. So the first thing is, in chapter 2, we learned that we are the recipients of God's sacrificial love and amazing grace. Now, again, that's, that's not a, a shock, a letter from Paul to the church. We, we, we've seen that in a number of things, but it's still something that we need to, to be reminded of. There's some specific things, though. We have life because Jesus carried out our death sentence for us. And we have life because Christ conquered death once for all by rising from the dead. We need to understand something. We don't believe in a martyr. We place our faith in a risen Savior. There is a big difference. Think of it this way. Jesus did not die saving us. Again, hold on for a minute. Jesus atoned for, he paid our debt of sin through his death. Christ has secured our pardon. This was all necessary. This is all a necessary part of what he did. But our hope for eternity is not actually in his death. Our hope is secured through his life, through his resurrection. We are made alive through Christ and with Christ. That is what we have been studying. Amen. The second thing, we saw in verses 1 through 4, and I just briefly referenced that in chapter 3, that we who are reconciled to God need to change our focus and purpose 
from earthly things to eternal things. This also means that we stop feeding our selfish desires and focus our attention on things that matter for eternity. So it's, it's, a, it's a change of mind. It's a change of focus. But I don't want us to trip, have, have ourselves trip over thinking that this is some super holy level of spirituality that we can never reach. And that brings us to another thing that we need to remember. We have to fight the same phony principles today that the false teachers are pushing on the Colossians in chapter 2. We can deceive ourselves that there is some secret spiritual club that we can only join if we do certain things, have secret knowledge, or some mystical experience we must add to our daily faith and obedience. Um, you know, in some ways, it'd be nice if it was that easy, right? If there was just something that we could, we could attain, but it's not. It is a daily choice. It's a daily faith. And then, number four, the last thing we looked at, um, not, not quite the last thing, but we also looked at uh, sexual sins and covetousness. We spent a couple of weeks on this because they're, they're heady topics. These things were personal in nature. And Paul says that when a person commits immorality, they sin against their own body. The sins that we're going to be talking about now are more social in nature. But we just need to be reminded that covetousness is idolatry. Wanting, wanting now, not needs or not just enjoying life, but, but having that desire to gain, um, whether it's something that we don't have or something that somebody else has, covetousness is, is replacing God as far as our focus and our attention is. And it's certainly on those earthly things that we're supposed to be getting our attention off. And then one last thing I want us to consider as we, as we again, just kind of link things back to this more practical side of the book. Not that we haven't learned some practical things, but it's a little more doctrinal, theological in nature. One last link should be uh, should help our focus and our motivation, and it's this. He is the image, the exact representation of the invisible God, he obviously being Christ, the firstborn over all creation, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Now, just in case the Colossians are wondering, what does that mean? He added later on in chapter 2, For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Amen. Now, let's go back to our previous verse uh, quickly here, just the one that we just looked at. He's the head of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn of the dead. And all things, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So the thing that is linked, and let's talk about preeminence for a moment, that is the superiority of Christ over all things. He is the one who is to receive the glory by our living. All right? He is the one who uh, doesn't deserve, like he didn't do something, so then, oh, yes, we should do that. He just simply is the greatest, right? He is the most powerful. And on top of that, it goes back to the link that he is the head of the body. Well, how and why is he the head of the body? Because he rose first. Because he brought life to us. And that goes back to this whole idea. Yes, his death is so immensely important. 
But if he never rose again, it would not be effectual because he is the firstborn from the dead. That is the hope that we have. And so in all of this, it points us to Christ. We have moved into the practical aspects of how we're to live out our faith. But we sometimes forget that our daily living is directly linked to our present mindset. Linking these principles is essential. If our thinking is seasoned with what we have been rescued from and what we now have as a child of God, if our mind is fixed on things of eternal worth, and the better we understand that there is no one or nothing greater than Jesus Christ, then it will come out in our daily living. So sometimes we wonder to ourselves, what's wrong with me? How come I can't get over this? Well, maybe it's our focus. I really think that's what Paul is telling the Colossians. This is how you grow. Now, we've already been given a lot of great instruction on how to grow. But, but really, when, when everything is, is laid out there, it's where are our thoughts? Where is our heart? What are we actually worshiping? Who are we worshiping? Is it ourselves or is it God? And when those answers line up properly based upon our motivations and all those different things that drive us, then that answer should be Jesus Christ. That's who we are living for. Does that radically change the things that you do in your life? Maybe so, maybe not, but it sure changes how you do them. It changes how you focus on them, right? And that is essential. So that brings us to the point where we're at now, which is what does it mean to put off? I read this passage for you and we are down in, um, oh my goodness, where are we here? Um, Eight, sorry. But now you must put off all of these, right? And we're going to look at the first three things today. But what does it mean to put off? The phrase put off is used twice in this passage, uh, but they are actually two different Greek words. Now, they're not radically different, but the first usage is translated to discard or lay aside. Think of it as wanting to put something away from us. Um, We want to put some distance between ourselves and something else. A good example might be how we react to the shirt we have just worn after a a, a long day of yard work. Uh, We want to just get it off of us and get it away from us, right? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know what, what it is, but... How come we have to, and I'm really not trying to, I'm trying to make a point. How come when we take that shirt off, we seem like we have to like give it a quick sniff, you know, before we chuck it? You know, it's like, is it really as bad as I think it is? Yes, it is. You know, I don't know why. I do that. I'm being honest, you know. But what's the point? The point is we recognize I don't want this on me anymore, right? That's that whole discarding thing. We want it away from us. Okay, fine, great, we're to put that off. Paul tells us that we are to rid ourselves of what is listed here, these next items. So what are we to put off? Again, the first three things that we're talking about really are all about anger. And folks, I just, I'm just going to tell you right up front, this is something that I struggle with sometimes. This is something that I fail at sometimes. Um, and and it's, it's, um, it's something that I, that I, I, do, I do battle with. But let's define our terms. The first one is anger, a strong feeling of frustration or an unsettled dissatisfaction. 
It's a really nice de definition, Merriam-Webster version of we get ticked off about stuff, right? <laughs> Anger is more internal, but is definitely expressed in many ways, okay? In other words, it happens more inside than it really comes outside. Not to say that it doesn't come out, but usually anger is still something that's in there. Anger is our selfish reaction to something that disturbs our personal little world. We could be annoyed by a situation or a person's actions. We may feel put out or inconvenienced. Being asked to do a chore while we're enjoying an activity or watching the game or being asked to do a chore while we're doing just about anything else, right? We can get angry about that. And by the way, we have young people in our audience today. You ever get angry when mom or dad asks you to do something? Yeah. Adults. <laughs> do you ever get upset? Do you ever get that unsettled feeling when your spouse or family member or neighbor or whoever asks you to do something? Yes, we do sometimes. We may feel that we're being uh, unfairly treated. Another quick example. Caitlin said hi to Bianca, but she didn't say hi to me. Right? We can get angry. Or the five customers in line in front of you at Panda, Panda Express, were served way more food on their plate than you were. That just happened to us recently. I had to get over that. I got ripped off. <laughs> it may be a small persistent thing that irritates us a child who keeps asking questions oh and they don't really accept the answer that you give right so they ask why several more times and then when you get firm they get whiny and then when they get whiny and you still they still don't like what your answer is it becomes a full meltdown. And we need to add that it's also at the cereal aisle at Meyer. <laughs> Real situations, right? It can come in various other forms. Here's some more examples. A neighbor who doesn't do things the way we think they should be done. Right? They're letting their lawn go again. And we all know that means the property values are all going to fall. Right? A coworker or classmate is different than you are, and you're losing patience with them. Or a habit that your spouse has. How about the legendary skills that men have of getting articles of clothing so close to the laundry basket, but not quite in? Or sometimes we frankly don't even try, right? Again, I toss things there, they're kind of hanging off. That was close. <laughs> Those last few steps, for whatever reason, they're just too much. Ladies, I'm going to pick on you a little bit. What is this about your exclusive rights to the bathroom and sink and, and, sink, mirror, sink and mirror? And you say, I have to get ready. We don't? <laughs> so, yeah, this never happens in our house. Neither one of these things ever happened in our house. But when that happens and we observe that, we can get that unsettled feeling. A friend who always wants to talk about what they are interested in or doing. 
or what they're going through. I'm not talking about a natural conversation where you're exchanging ideas or talking different stories and things like that. This could be something about their family where you always hear about how wonderful their children are or you know, their situation is. Um, it could be daily activities that they want to tell you every detail about. It could be their problems, which are fine until it's the fifth or sixth time or whatever. Or it could be bird watching or some other weird interest. I mean, there's any number of things that people can share that start to irritate us a bit. These are real life examples of where anger begins and the everyday situations where anger builds. If anger is left unchecked, or if we actually indulge our anger, it will lead to the next stage. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But one thing I want to, to help us understand, and we'll, we'll clarify this a little bit later on, not all negative emotion is anger. Um, again, I, I'm really not trying to, to pick on our young people here. I think maybe all of us do it to a degree. But if someone speaks to us and corrects us about something, um, I've had this happen before. I talk to a young person and I say, hey, you know, you need to stop doing that, whatever. Maybe it's something in the church, something like that. Not necessarily, you know, in, in my present uh, state here, but they'll turn to me and say, stop yelling at me. I'm like, what do you mean yelling at you? I'm not yelling at you. You're yelling at me. And it's like, well, no, actually, you're just now yelling at me for me not yelling at you. But anyway, you get what I'm trying to say. And so sometimes we... I don't know how it happens. Maybe we're sensitive or whatever, but we kind of project anger on uh, coming from somebody else. It's not necessarily the case. So not everything that we're talking about is anger just because we might define it that way, all right? But then we go to this area of wrath. Wrath is more of an uncontrolled anger that pours out of us. We need to note that anger and wrath are sometimes used interchangeably in the scriptures, but as they are used here, they are meant to communicate progression. There, there, is, there is anger, and then there is wrath that results from the anger that is unchecked. Wrath is used to describe an explosive outburst. We have all kinds of phrases to describe this. We lose it. We hit the roof. We blow our top. Um, we might say something like this, they just hit my last nerve. They're pressing all my buttons. Whatever wordage we use, what we're describing is, I am now out of control. I am now exhibiting wrath. Now again, I, I went through a lot of examples here in relation to anger because, you know, there's a lot of things that can bother us. And being tweaked about something, being bothered about something, you know, having that feeling come up doesn't necessarily equal anger, but when it does become an angry situation inside and or out, we need to acknowledge it for what it is. But here's an important question. Is all anger sin? I know that there are some who would say, yes. If, if, you, if you, you know, lose your temper you know, from their point of view, then, then, then you have sinned. But I do believe the answer is no. Our context in this passage is selfishness. It's earthly thinking. And we need to keep that in mind. 
We have given uh, several examples of anger, but in general, when we are angry, uh, when our anger has to do with voicing our displeasure, making sure our wants are fulfilled, that is selfishness. When we manipulate others and getting our own way with our anger, that is selfishness. And that's just a couple of ways to kind of picture that. But what I want us to see is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. That's right here on the slide. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So then, what does this passage mean? We can be angry about a number of things that are okay to get upset about. When we or someone else is, is sinned against in a significant way, and we show our displeasure. When we encounter injustice, when a child is being disobedient, yes, I'm sorry, we can't let ourselves off the hook, young people, right? Mom and dad are angry with me. They're sinning. That's not quite the case, not necessarily. We can come up with a number of examples, but every one of them comes down to the heart. Are we being selfish or do we have a righteous, God-honoring motive? To, for example, and I'm not picking on kids, it's just a good example here. If a child does something that is harmful to themselves or is a sin against somebody else and the parent steps in, shows their displeasure, right, is angry, you should not have done that. You did this, you did not do that, whatever it might be, right? They're, they're letting the, the young person know you've got to correct this. This is a serious thing. The motive is pure on the surface. But at the same time, even then we've got to be careful that that can turn into a selfish situation. Then we have this phrase, do not, uh, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. That's, I've heard some different goes at this, but I'll say it this way. This is a borrowed proverb from that day, which means do not allow even righteous anger to get out of control and become an offense. In other words, wrath is not okay. It's okay if your anger is stirred over wrong behavior. We have already seen that it is not okay to get angry when a person wants what a person wants or, or, or prefers is violated, right? If it's just my wants and preferences that don't go my way, that's not right. And it's not okay to allow our anger to get out of control even when we're angry over the right things. We're also warned here that when wrath is allowed, we actually give Satan an opportunity to work. And we cannot allow this to happen. And folks, we're not going to take the time, but my goodness... How many ways can our enemy and his forces take what we have just said or done and use that to do battle against righteousness, right? And this brings us to an even less um, enjoyable topic, which is malice. We cannot separate malice from anger, but it is different. Malice goes specifically to intent. Wrath and malice both occur when anger is allowed to sit in our soul and fester. Let's understand that. Wrath, that's that explosive thing. 
That's when we get irritated to the point where we lash out at somebody or something. Anger, I'm sorry, malice is still an anger that spills out, but it's different. When I think of wrath, and sometimes when we kind of you know, have this outburst, uh, one of the things that, that we probably would acknowledge is that it's, it's not always intended to be personal. We get frustrated. It's, it's us. We might be frustrated with someone or something, but we don't necessarily intend to hurt them. But it comes out, right? Malice is a determination to do some type of harm to someone. Different than wrath. It is a result of anger being turned over and over again in our minds. Malice is often planned and premeditated. Now, malice can be delivered very calmly, even stealthily, like a trap set for an unsuspecting victim or a snake coiled to strike. However, it can also show itself in the most aggressive and, vi- and violent ways imaginable against someone else. You know, I, I think of, um, uh, I'm not going to give names and all that kind of stuff, but there was a situation where a politician uh, not that long ago was talking about having um, more civility in politics, right? More civility. We should talk civil to one another. And as I observed that, I thought to myself, and what they were basically saying was, you know, the other side doesn't have a right to get angry, is really what they were saying. As I thought about it, you know, there's nothing civil, nothing civil about talking very calmly and very intellectually about destroying an unborn child. There's nothing civil about that. There's nothing civil about advocating for rights that go against the word of God. It is a very uncivil thing, but it's thought out, it's premeditated, and it's very calm. Now, that's not necessarily anger being exhibited. That's not necessarily malice, although I would say in the case of the unborn, it actually is. But I just want us to see that. People who have allowed anger to turn to bitterness often have malice in their hearts and are ready to deliver the precise words or actions against someone at just the right moment to inflict the most damage possible. That doesn't mean it's always the case, but I'm sorry, that tends to be the goal. Of course, its source is pure selfishness, isn't it? We need to be honest. So an example might be a father who doesn't like the direction his son is taking in his life has an opportunity to compare him with someone who thinks that he is more successful than his son. And so he says, why can't you be more like? And then gives that person's name. Just at the right time, right? Maybe when this person's up here and their son is struggling with something, bam, right? It's that festering frustration, that anger, that bitterness, that you're not doing what I want you to do. 
That's one extreme. How about the other extreme that we unfortunately see often? A former boyfriend murders the mother of two children. Premeditated. Malice. Our world is full of it. Sometimes our hearts are full of it. So, why are we to change these old ways? I hope it's obvious as we look at what anger is. But because we have put off the old man and put on the new, that's the biggest reason. We're different. We're changed. Now, the second usage is like taking off a garment to put on another one. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in, in, in the future here. We, we have some more things to deal with. But we have already established that the old man is dead. We've already looked at that in our previous studies. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We are now a new creation in Jesus. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 6. We looked at this passage last week. We didn't look at this specific, these specific verses. But last week we talked about our freedom in Christ. Today we're talking about one thing that we need to be freed from, right? This topic of anger. But I want you to see in Romans 6 the idea that we are changed. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 16. So it says, What shall I say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now again, this is talking about the spiritual baptism that we covered a number of weeks ago, still in this, chap in, in, in this book of Colossians, right? This was the parallel passage. Uh, so let me start reading again. Verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old body was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now again, just like we started with, one of the things that we were, we were reminded of, there were some very important aspects to the, to the death of Christ, right? Not only what he did, but what we experienced through that. But then it goes on. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. No power. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon or consider yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, folks, is what we are really focusing on as we consider the, the, the fact that, that this is something that we are to put off. We're to consider ourselves dead to these things. And let's just finish up verses uh, 12 and 13 here, okay? Therefore, do not let rain, sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall have not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. We, we, we don't have to worry about those things that were related to our old life. Um, they're there. They're there. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. 
So this is a good point to insert that Christ is to be first and foremost in everything, right? He is to have the preeminence. And this includes how we live our lives. This includes specifically how we deal with anger. Christ is to have supremacy. Why? Because we're dead to that. And we're putting it off. We're new. We want to put on other things. And then lastly, why do we struggle to change? (laughs) Why do we struggle to change? Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in this topic because it's a classic battle that we face. We may refer to this again as we look at some other things next week. But as we just kind of look at this package, so to speak, of anger. Anger, not good. Anger can be sinful, right? Wrath, that, that spilling over. That, that reactionary type of anger that we have, that's wrong. Or even when we're talking about that, that, that settled hostility, right, of malice, where it's a little maybe quieter, it just sits there for a while. Sometimes you don't even attach it to what the person is angry about, but it's there. One's an outburst, one's premeditated they're really one and the same when it comes to the results, right? As we consider this, I want us to read uh, Romans chapter 7. Again, we were in Romans chapter 7 last week too, but not this, path, not this part of it. Starting in verse 14. 14 and then reading through verse 25. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, for which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I'm in chapter 8. Those are wonderful verses, and I was wondering when I was going to get to what I needed to get to. Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can laugh at myself a little bit here. <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway, <laughs> I can get angry about this, but I'm not going to. Okay. <laughs> All right. Oh, boy. Okay. Can we just start that one over again? Okay. <laughs> Chapter 7. By the way, we didn't cover that last week either. <laughs> okay, verse 14. <laughs> oh. oh, boy. Sorry, that took me off a little bit. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. But what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then... I do what I will not to do. I agree that the law, with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Okay, now, now keep that thought there for a minute. So we're thinking, oh, it's not me. It's the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Ah, we almost got off the hook. No, no, it's still us, right? Then we go on. 
For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. For if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, that's my fleshly side. Not my spiritual side, my fleshly side. I find then a law that evil is present with me. We can even say evil is a constant, right? It's always there. The one who wills to do good. Evil is always present with me. The one, me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For, for then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Look, folks, we have been rescued from this. That's what we have just been studying. But the reality is here. The struggle is very real. Paul graphically explains we are always going to struggle with sin until we are completely freed from it in the life to come. For some, anger and sins that go along with it can be a real struggle. But everyone deals with it at one time or another. We will consider ways to overcome our anger as we continue our study. But what I want us to learn today is that we need to put anger off. And as we look at the struggle, just to finish, of what we're dealing with here, of what Paul is explaining, what he's saying is this. Man, I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. But then there's this other want. This other want right next to the want to do right. And it's the want to do wrong. It's the flesh that wants to take over, right? What, do we, what did we study not that long ago? The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. God, the Holy Spirit inside of us is guiding us. He's wanting to be successful. He's wanting us to, to, to guide us into obedience, to glorify him, to glorify God. Amen. But there's still that desire, I've got to be right. I've got to make my point. I've got to put them in their place. They made me uncomfortable. They need to know that. Folks, guilty. I'm guilty of that. It's something that we need to wrestle down, that we need to get rid of, that we need to put off. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. It's hurtful to ourselves and to others. As we talked about before, this is a social sin. And so I just want to encourage us. We have been freed from this. It is possible to get over this. Amen. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's delivered with a smile, right? When we're even thinking about malice. It can be very calmly stated. And it can just kill somebody's heart, right? It's still anger. Or it can be an outburst. And maybe even scares some of your family members. <laughs> Regardless of that, 
Let's put it off. Let's put it away. Why? Because Christ is the one who rules our hearts. Because we have an opportunity, even though that struggle is real, to glorify him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been talking for weeks on the fact that some of these topics we're looking at are difficult. And it's... Frankly, it'd be easy to whitewash this a bit, to acknowledge that it's there and make a few comments about it and move on quickly to the rest of the list, move on to the things that are, that are positive. But Lord, your word has a lot to say about this, and we even think of the prophet who dared be angry with you because you saved a city full of people. I So I pray, Lord, that we won't justify our anger by saying that it's justified. But that we'll really consider what's stirring in our hearts. Is it something that we perceive that is wrong because of the person we want to protect? Or are we truly being sinned against? And when we respond... Lord, I pray that we will wrestle that anger down so that is not what comes out, so that it really doesn't even come to fruition even in our own hearts. And when we do need to express some displeasure, Lord, I pray that it's coming from righteousness and that when we are sharing some of those things, that it doesn't turn into wrath, it doesn't turn into malice, but it's really used to help somebody else become more like you. Lord, forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we struggle with just what we want, what we perceive that we need. And through your spirit, give us the strength, give us the, 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 the perseverance to continue to lay these things aside. In Christ's name, amen.